welcome to this episode of Tones and Drones, an ambient music podcast. I'm Jason Miller, your host. Tones and Drones is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVLU. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Chuck Wild. He is the mastermind behind Liquid Mind, deep ambient music that provides a place for contemplation and meditation, relaxation, and he's researched the music so well, the components of it that he puts into his compositions and the benefits that the albums can provide. And I've listened to Liquid Mind for years now, and it was really great to talk to him about his composition process and the different aspects of his life that led to him producing the Liquid Mind music because he was a member of a uh, hit-making 80s new wave band. We'll talk about that. He also did some sound design for the King of Pop. Those stories mix into his musical journey, and it's a fascinating one. And it was so fun having a conversation with him. He's very generous uh, with uh, the information and uh, also his music, too. And you'll, you'll hear that as part of the topic in our conversation. And also some music of Liquid Mind just like this particular track that I started the program off with called Awakening. Up next, my conversation here on Tones and Drones with Chuck Wild of Liquid Mind. Jason, hello. Hello, Chuck. How are you? I'm okay. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm doing really well. I've been listening to recent Liquid Mind albums, including your 2021 Mindfulness release, and I've been playing them this week at different times. I had one going this morning as I was waiting for my wife to return home so we could have a little bit of tea before I came up here. And, um, and uh, I really enjoy your music so much. And I, I, I was thinking that the first time that I heard a Liquid Mind album actually was in massage therapy years ago. I was going to an independent massage therapist. And mm. I asked what she was listening to, what was being played specifically, because um, I've had a long time interest in, in ambient music and, and, and work on it as a hobby myself and related styles. And I, it, it just was so striking that, that 
and she mentioned what it was. And then we have a show here on the station called The Quiet Hour that's been running for many years. And we have a library of music and we have some real music releases here. And so it led me to look in our library and, and seek out the music. And because I was wanting to kind of pinpoint when that was. And uh, and so I very much appreciate your music. And and uh, and and I was trying to think like I was looking at the at the list of of benchmarks I had Chuck and I was like you know where do we go and I wanted to ask you first how did you start using synthesizer and electronic music what what's your background in approaching that because it 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 led you some places before you got to liquid mind right it really did um gosh I think I bought my first oh my god my first synth in 19 76 around then. Oh, wow. A long time ago. I was in the Navy from 1968 to 1970. And um, I came back. Uh, I had promised my dad that I would try his business. He was an insurance agent, my late father. And um, I promised him that I would try the insurance business back in Kansas City, where we grew up. Uh, but I told him that, you know, I may just want to be a musician. <laughs> I've been playing piano since I was four years old. I played organ in church for five years when I was a teenager and like, you know, adolescent teenager, I guess, preteen, they call it now. And um, I just thought um, I'll try out the insurance business. So I went back to Kansas City, but I joined a band immediately. And people were talking about these synthesizers that had actually been invented, I think, in the 1940s. So oh. I bought uh, my first one was a mini Moog, oh, wow. which I had until about two years ago. I used to have three of them. And it was what's called a monophonic synth which meant one voice. You could only play one note at a time. And it had all kinds of controls on it. And uh, the envelope controls, which are attack, decay, sustain, release. And um, that basically shapes the sound. Instead of having a sound go, dut, 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 you could have it go, whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> so you have all kinds of uh, options with that. But I didn't find it all that useful for a while. I went on the road. I was on the road actually for 11 years. Um, and in the early 80s, well, actually in 1979, I moved back to Los Angeles, or I moved to Los Angeles. I say back because I was in the Navy in Long Beach, stationed out of Long Beach okay, out here, which is where I live right now, actually. And the um, so uh, I came back to LA and started buying more synths. They were very, very expensive. I think uh, I bought an Oberheim synth for $10,000. Wow. It just, it's something that you can get in a plug-in now for free online <laughs> practically. But at the time it was, it was unbelievable. And, and uh, on my birthday in 1980, I, I had signed up for something called the Musician's Contact Service. And on my birthday, which was September 22nd, 1980, 
uh, I got a phone call and this gal was on the phone and she says, hi, is this Chuck Wild? And I said, yes. She said, my name's Dale Bozio and I'm in a band called Missing Persons. <laughs> and we all work with Frank Zappa. Would you like to audition for our band? And um, I said, well, it's my birthday. And she said, well, we promise we'll buy you this amazing Italian dinner if you'll come and audition today. <laughs> so um, I said, okay, I'll do that. I was kind of new to LA and didn't have any plans for my birthday. So I went and had the audition and uh, they really liked that I had a bunch of synths by then. And uh, remember Terry Bozio came mm -hmm. over and he said, you know, you might want to move that mini Moog over by your left hand because I need you to play left hand bass with the mini Moog and then the keyboard parts with your right hand because we just want to be three piece for now. And I was completely taken aback and I said, Terry, I've never done that before. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that I have that kind of coordination. So I loved their music, but I failed the audition. And I said, you know, maybe uh, if you could give me a cassette of these songs, uh, I could go home and practice and give you a call back. And he said, great. So I went home in 1980 in September and and spent day and night practically. I was working a day job too, but I spent a lot of time. I would get up at five o'clock in the morning with headphones to not wake up my roommate. And I would practice this ind hand independence and uh, playing the bass part in the left hand on the mini Moog and the other parts on the Oberheim OBX. And I think I had a Prophet 5 or something like that at the time. And um, after about a week, I could do it. I started out with, I had a cassette player that had a VSO, that means variable speed yes. operation. Mm -hmm. And I would turn it really slow, like dun, 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 and then go faster and faster and faster. And finally, I got it up to speed. And so I called them up and I said, can I have another audition? And they said, yeah, great. Um, I think I think Terry told me they had auditioned 100 people or something, but nobody could, could do that. But fortunately, just through the practice, the process of practicing a lot, I got the gig and joined the band and, and uh, that really started my music career. I had already been on the road for many years, just playing like in top 40 bands, which is great experience. Uh, ultimately, I became a songwriter and, and having played all those hit pop songs for years was a great help to me when, like after I left Missing Persons, I became a staff writer for Warner's, Warner, Warner Chapel Music subdivision of Warner music. So that's kind of my beginning. That's the long story of my beginning with synthesizers. Uh, well, you know, the thing about it, first of all, we both share September 22nd birthdays. So I no, saw that on Wikipedia. So here. we're both on the Virgo cusp of Libra there, you know, unbelievable. <laughs> so, so there was that. And, you know, talking about the, with missing persons, you know, looking at it and, and, you know, I mean, it's like, 
Walking in LA, you know, Destination Unknown, Walking in LA. I mean, I love that song. I mean, it's like I listened to it again when I was doing research because it's so great. It's such a great pop song. And and uh, uh, the Spring Session M album, the big hit record. But also with, with, with new wave music, I was just wondering, it's like you had to adopt some fashion, right? I mean, like, because there was such imagery that was looks and fashions that was based with the new wave music. And uh, was, was, was that something you already listened to? Or then all of a sudden you're in this like new wave punk kind of situation and not just the, the synthesizer work, but also the imagery that went with it. <laughs> well, I always liked Blondie. I, li- I liked the music, you know, okay. I like, I listen to music all the time, whatever's on the pop radio. And back then it was a radio station called KROQ, which really has become legendary since then. Mm-hmm. Um, the fashion aspect of it, I remember as we started rehearsing, this was really Terry Bozio and Dale Bozio's vision. Okay. And the band along with Warren Cucurullo, um, you know, it was their vision. And um I was just kind of an addition to that, you know, to fill out the musical roster uh, to begin with, especially. But Terry loved um, the Italian filmmaker whose name escapes me at the moment, Fellini, Federico Fellini, who did these amazing cutting edge films. And we would go watch them and we would see the stage set and we wanted our stage set to be... um, like a Fellini film. Wow. So that's why if you if you ever find any pictures, I don't even know if I have any anymore, but the stage said we covered all our equipment in plastic and just a space for the keyboards and and Terry's drums were covered and oh my gosh, I like saw that sticking out. Oh yeah. yeah, I saw that on YouTube and I was like, are they worried about rain? That's interesting. <laughs> So we did that and we had a we had a bunch of uh very designed some uh, some designs that were kind of influenced i'd say by asian art uh, he loved japanese art and he designed some fixtures are the only words i can name he gave me the picture and i went over i lived in hollywood at the time and i went over to a place that constructed that did um steel welding so you could take them something whatever the shape was and they would take pieces of quarter inch steel and build it you know hollywood they're always building something for a film or a tv show or something so they didn't find that unusual at all and and there were these amazing i guess they were about 10 feet to 12 feet tall these amazing uh shapes it's like just like a piece of art like a piece of japanese art and then uh i had them weld them in parts so we could take it apart and put it in the back of my van at the time and then we at uh terry said let's attach lights to them so the stage was all lit up with this really surreal you know backdrop i mean people would just cheer the minute the lights came on (laughs) on the stage it was really crazy we we sold out 40 shows in a row in hollywood between 1980 and the end of 1981 anyway as part of that 
um, a guy named Dougie Powell was, uh, uh, who now produces videos, I think. Uh, Dougie was Dale's a good buddy and he did her hair and makeup and stuff like that. And he started coming up with these concepts for outfits for her. And he said, you know, you guys need to dye your hair. And, and so we all dyed our hair. I had purple hair, then I had pink hair, <laughs> all different colors. Um, and everybody got into it. We just sort of got into it. It was like great fun. And um, we bought the clothes to go along with, with it, whatever we thought, you know, what would people wear in this imaginary world and um, there were a lot of really, really fun clothes. Uh, actually, we had to, gosh, what was her name? Audrey Carter uh, designed our clothes, actually. Um, I think she was a friend of one of my piano students. Oh, gosh, I can't remember. It might be the other way around. But um, Audrey would build clothes for us, actually make clothes for us. And, and we'd also buy some clothes from really top of the line places. They were very expensive. I didn't make any money in missing persons. I think it was all spent on, on equipment. I think all in all, I figured up one day that I bought $250,000 worth of equipment. And back in, in the seventies and eighties, that was a lot of money. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, and still today. Uh, my parents loaned me some of the money and I worked and and uh, you know the label when we got signed to a label, some of that money went towards that. Wow. That, so that's I mean, that's the clothes. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, I mean there was a plasticky look because she's known to wear those plastic tops, those plastic brawl tops and then everything, and and it's <clears> like <throat> it was very plasticky looking. Yeah, like what I look at exactly. It. Yeah that that kind of image to it and and so missing persons so um uh not just recording on tour with missing persons for for several years and um what was your musically after that where where did you go after that because you you just didn't you had mentioned obviously that you became a a songwriter on on staff and (laughs) and so all this experience in pop music now working on hit pop albums um like where do you go from there i mean because it's like um at, at that point in time it's like you had quite a knowledge of of pop format and pop style and 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 uh and 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 touring and what it needed to do that and then now you're in the songwriting place and so you're writing for other groups at this point in time after right. after missing persons right um i think i i i wanted to take a break um just from you know being on the road like for so many years, I think I went on the road in in 1973, and then I left Missing Persons in 1984. So that was a long time with never living in one place very mm-hmm. much. Um, and after that, uh, I wanted to learn how to write songs. Uh, the reality of the music business is that the people who write the music especially if you're in signed to a record label, you're the ones that are going to make the money. And I didn't write any of the songs of Missing Persons. I wanted to, but they had already written 30 songs when I 
joined the band. Oh, wow. So they had an album's worth of material already. And uh, so I left the band uh, to learn how to write songs, really. And I called everybody I knew, everybody I had ever met in L.A., and I said, will you write a song with me? And one of the people I called uh, was a guy named Gary Scardina. And Gary owned a studio, a wonderful studio, with, a, with his friend Ron Felicia. It was called The Music Grinder. And a lot of hit records, especially heavy metal, but, but all kinds really were made there. I think everyone from, you know, Paul McCartney and other folks had worked at the Music Grinder. And Gary said, sure, Chuck, I'll write a song with you. Let's get together with, with my friend Marty Sharon. And Gary and Marty had written a song called Jump for Your Love for the Pointer Sisters, which became their biggest hit. It was the number one song, I believe. It was certainly number one in the West Coast and probably in the top five in the United States on Billboard. And so uh, I subsequently started writing with Marty. I think we wrote about 25 songs that got recorded. Um, the biggest hit hits were in Europe, actually, for a, an artist named Jennifer Rush. Uh, it wasn't that popular in the United States, but she sold really well. and. Um, Marty introduced me to Linda Perry, who was the ex-wife of Richard Perry, the Pointer Sisters producer, and a very famous producer who just rele released a book, actually. And um, I worked with Richard a bit, did some sessions for him for different artists, Paula Abdul and so forth. And so I was doing studio work and writing songs. and. Um, one day I got a call from Lorimar. I'm going to kind of lead into uh, from the songwriting into Liquid Mind here. I got a call from Lorimar Telepictures uh, from Linda. And she said, uh, Chuck, can you come over? We'd like to have a meeting with you. And they said, what would you think about doing some film scoring? I okay. said, well, I've never done it before. Okay. And she said, well, the show we have in mind is a really cutting edge show. It's just won an Emmy. It's called Max Headroom. Yes. And it's about a computerized character and it's enormously popular. And you don't really have to have that traditional sense. You know, we want someone who knows synthesizers and, and your co-composer, Michael Honig, um, is already well known as you know and and he can like sort of help you along so to speak so i thought okay what the heck <laughs> and this was in august of 1987 little did i know what i was getting in for michael was a great guy and very patient but uh for max headroom they needed 40 two minutes or 43 minutes, I guess, of music. They wanted the show completely covered with music. They wanted music from start to finish on the episodes. And unfortunately, they were way behind schedule, which meant that we only had four or five days to compose, record, and mix 40 plus minutes of music. Oh my gosh. It was unbelievable. It was um, it was really a, a nightmare because I didn't get to sleep. 
I, uh, I slept in Michael's wife was an artist and uh, he lived in a loft downtown and we worked in his studio and I could never even go home. I, I, I slept in his wife's art studio, which smelled of paint, which wasn't exactly fun either. <laughs> and at the most, I got four hours sleep a night for three months, seven days a week. And at the same time, um, I, I'm openly gay. I've been out of the closet for, I don't know, 50 years or something ridiculous like that. And um, my friends were dying of AIDS and I couldn't be there for them. And I was like, so freaked out. I actually lost 65 friends. That's when I stopped counting. Oh, and oh, I used wow. to keep an honor roll of them. And finally, oh. it was just too much for me. I, it was, you know, too emotional. And mm. um, the combination of sleep deprivation for three months, I started having panic attacks and anxiety attacks. And um, I couldn't catch my breath. Uh, when Max Headroom was canceled, I thought, Oh, I'll go to Las Vegas and relax. I mean, that's how out of my mind was. Well, it <laughs> ran for, <laughs> it only ran for like a short time, right? It only was like right. one or one or two. I think there were 12, seasons. yeah, 12 episodes yeah. or something like that split yeah. out over two seasons. Right. Yeah, exactly. I watched it again when it reappeared like on the CW or something like two years ago. I watched the episodes and quite dark too. It was very dystopian before that right. was kind of a big deal before with this dystopian. Uh, yeah. Exactly. You know, cyberpunk of the way it treats the media. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there that was was unique for its time. And musically, I'm gonna have to listen again and hear how much music and because I remember the music and in in the in while watching because it hadn't been very many years ago I revisited because when I was a kid it was coming out and um you know I would see Max Hedrum in different parts of pop culture but I didn't watch the series then it wasn't until I, a couple of years ago that I did it. I don't know if it scared me as a kid or what, but I didn't I didn't watch it when it originally aired in the States. It was, you know, it was a lot of fun, actually, uh, other than being totally exhausted. Once I got into the, you know, the panic state, it wasn't so much fun then. But oh, yeah. the start of it was great. And they would film downtown. And the producer, uh, Peter Wagg, who was, I think he may have been the, you know, the person who came up with the concept. He'd mm -hmm. call us up and say, why don't you come over and watch this film, you know, get the vibe of it. And it was indeed dark, you know, they'd be down in the river banks or something mm -hmm. and in all these uh, crazy places. Yeah, there was the I remember this one scene where people are they're walking through this area where people looks like people that are homeless or whatnot. And they're all walking through this area. And it's like all these little they're watching all these old TVs, you know, and there's like, you yep. know, burning, burning uh, uh, fires and the 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 the. the the big containers, but there's like televisions yeah. everywhere. It was very, very unique design for sure. Yeah. I, I can't say that, that the music was really that great. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have much experience and Michael's, you know, what Michael did, I think was good. We both did all the episodes together and then we decided so that we would have single credits. He took credit on four episodes. I took credit on four episodes. There was one episode, curiously, that was never aired. It was considered too controversial. This, this is a little snapshot into 1987. <laughs> uh, the censors, the network censors 
halted one episode called Baby Grow Bags, G-R-O-B-A-G-S. Wow. I think you can maybe find it now, uh, certainly in, in video and stuff like that. But because it was about having babies um, in bags, like, you know, women were too busy working now and they didn't have time to have babies. So their babies would just be grown in these hanging bags wow. in this room. And they were taken care of and there was sweet music behind it. Probably a little hint of what was to become Liquid Mind. But um, but wow. they just, the censors flipped out over that. They thought, no, you can't have this. You know, the, the religion, the religious organizations will be on us in a minute. I think it was ABC television network. And so it was their, their censors. Now that kind of thing, nobody would probably think twice about it. But yeah. It's a, it's a, one of those things. I think it conceptually comes out about the future, like this outside the body right. uterus kind of like thought, you know, now, now when people are <laughs> looking to the future in a different way, Chuck, than they were looking into the future in 1987. So right. <laughs> the, the, um, so all, all this is happening and, and, so it's leading into to having panic attacks and a question I had when I was, I was looking at some of the links you, you had sent and whatnot. And, you know, at, in that particular time period, there's so much more awareness about panic attacks now, obviously, and so much more written on it and, and doctors, you know, uh, can diagnose and things like that. But what was that like in 1987 experiencing that and, how, how was it to walk through that in that era where there maybe wasn't so much awareness and so much, you know, obviously in, even information on the internet um, about, about that. Right. Um, well, the internet wasn't active at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so know, there was really, no I mean, websites. To it was, yeah. you know, there, right. Exactly. There wasn't any kind of information like that. And um it was scary. It was very scary when the show was canceled and I was, I got on a flight to Las Vegas and I had a panic attack before the flight took off and I started yelling and screaming. And I said, you need to let me off. So they went back to the gate, let me off um, and, and gave me back my luggage. Uh, That's how freaked out I was. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what it was. Um, the first time it happened, um, I was in a um, in a meeting with the the producer over at ABC Television in Hollywood, and he thought I was having a heart attack because I was going, <gasps> you know, like that, like really making strange sounds. Mm-hmm. And he he threw me in his Porsche and drove a hundred miles an hour to the nearest urgent care. And the doctor there said, you know, did all these tests. He said, there's nothing wrong with your heart, young man. He said, you're having what's called uh, an anxiety attack. And at at that moment in time, he held up two things in his hands. One of them was a bottle of pills. And the name of which escapes me at the time, because I decided not to take them. And the other thing was a piece of paper with meditation instructions. This guy was really ahead of his time. Um, Yeah. And he said, medication, meditation, they're only one letter apart. (laughs) I went, oh, my gosh. Mm. And so 
I yeah. said, I'll take both and decide later. <laughs> yeah, sure. And uh, so um, it still was, was scary, you know. Um, I would sit in my home <clears throat> once I got off that airplane and came back home. Uh, I didn't leave my house. I was afraid to leave it. That's called agoraphobia. Okay. And I really didn't want to go outside. I did have the good sense to, I had made some decent money in Max Headroom over those, those weeks. I got paid for eight episodes. It was a lot of money back then, uh, more than it is now. And the value of the dollar was a lot better <laughs> as well. So I was able to start therapy right away. I started uh, like talking to a therapist. And uh, I also got into acupuncture with Master Dao Xingni and his brother, Master Mao Xingni. They're 38th generation Taoist masters who were great acupuncturists. Since then, they've become like national TV stars and they have acupuncture places everywhere. But they were just running their little, you know, their little acupuncture and uh, healing location. I think it was in West LA at the time. Now they're all over the place. And um, Ma, or I think it was Dao Xing said to me, uh, Dao for short, he said, uh, you know, you almost killed yourself, Chuck. He said, this, this could take you a long time to heal from. And he said, I really in encourage you to meditate. And he showed me just a, a simple counting meditation. And then he showed me a meditation envis envisioning the different organs in my body as clouds of different colors. And I used to do that uh, when I was having this agoraphobia. I wouldn't leave home alone. And um, I used to do that for an hour, two hours at a time. And slowly but surely, I would have these moments of peace where my heart wasn't beating fast, where I wasn't hyperventilating. And uh, it took me several weeks to have moments of peace. And sometimes I would meditate for two hours at a time. And uh, I look back and just go, wow, that was some serious stuff. And, and hardly anyone understood what was going on. For the most part, people didn't want to be around me. It was like scary, I think, for them. Uh, I seem to recall my assistant saying, I need to leave, <laughs> you know, and, and, and just leaving. And um, the vice president of Lorimar, Linda Perry, came over to her credit and would visit me and say, you know, you're going to be fine. You're going to be just fine. And my, <clears throat> my parents were very supportive. Um, and encouraging to me. And um, I started reading on the subject and, and really slowly but surely started healing. Um, Liquid Mind um, was born out of that, that period of panic and anxiety. At one point, when I was actually leaving the house on my own, it, I was afraid to do that actually for a few weeks. But then I definitely was starting to get better. I was having acupuncture five days a week wow. and taking Chinese herbs for one year to get my health back because I had like, you know, really hurt myself by, by the sleep deprivation. And 
uh, one day the um, the counselor, one of the counselors that I was seeing said, you know, Chuck, have you ever thought about composing the kind of music not that represents the way you feel, but that represents the way you want to feel? Hmm. If you want to feel calm, how about some calm music? And I went home and I tried it and I couldn't do it. It was so difficult. I remember I had a couple of friends named Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw. They wrote a wonderful book called Life Extension and they were very famous. I'd met them in New York uh, when we were on tour. They, um, you know, they were all into health and health food. So uh, I just remember doing everything that I, that I conceivably could um, to get better. And um, I sent them a piece of music thinking it might be relaxing. And it was really like a bunch of 16th notes of like, it was the best I could do, but I was holding a chord under it. <laughs> okay. All right. Under all that. And, <clears throat> and they, they said, it's a fascinating, energetic piece of music. And I thought, well, I'm not quite there. And then my therapist said, uh, I always remember the day when he said, uh, I'm not going to work with you unless you'll go on a little vacation. I had never been on a vacation in like, I don't know, 35 years at that time, other than with my parents when I was a kid. And he said, I'm not going to work with you. He said, pick a location. It can be a mini vacation, even just one day. So I picked Laguna Beach, California. And I said, I'm going to go down there for two, two days. And, um, I took a book along with me called Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy, which uh, changed my life. A friend of mine, a songwriting friend of mine had told me about it. I'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, Laguna Beach is right on the ocean. And I walked down to the rocks and I sat there. And all of a sudden, I felt normal. It was so odd. I wasn't trying to do anything. I wasn't thinking anything in particular. It was the sound of the ocean. It was unbelievable. And I went, that's what I need to do for the music. I need to compose music that sounds like the ocean that never ends. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, oh, no, that'll break all the rules in music where space is the most important thing. You know, the music uh, kiss, that, that famous slogan, keep it simple, stupid that every music teacher uses. And it's correct in most cases. I said, I'm going to break all those rules. And I stayed one more night and then I went home and I started the first piece, which is called Zero Degrees Zero. And it's on the Ambience Minimus album. It's 30 minutes long. And it was the first slow music that I had ever recorded. It's not completely slow, but mostly slow and and the name comes because i thought that's the way i feel i feel at zero and so i'll call it zero degrees zero and um i thought latitude and longitude <laughs> you know when i was in the navy and so it was kind of a play play on words there um so that that was the beginning of liquid mind and and i sat there on those rocks, and I thought, wow, the liquid is relaxing my mind. Maybe I should call it liquid, liquid mind. mind. Mm. And I had come up with some other names, like 
I, I can't even remember them. They weren't exactly memorable. They didn't stick, yeah. Uh, but Liquid Mind always stuck with me, and I thought that said. I told a few people. I sent, after I'd done the first piece, and I, um, a few years later, about four years later, I uh, everyone that I had given it to, I made hundreds and hundreds of copies and took it around to AIDS hospices you know, thinking that it would help people heal or at least help them relax. And the feedback was really great on the music. And after a few years, I, I hired a, a, a person who's now really a good friend, Suzanne Doucet, who's a, a French recording artist, but she's also a consultant. And she owned a store called Only New Age Music. And she had all this really great music. And Suzanne said, you know, uh, you're going to need some money to bring your your product to market. But she said, I think it would be really great. So I had no idea where I was going to get the money, but I thought, okay, I'll go home and meditate. And I'd learned about affirmations then. Um, I used to read a lot by a guy named Ernest Holmes. And he wrote a book called Science of Mind. It doesn't have anything to do with Scientology or anything. A lot of people think that, but uh, Science of Mind is more, it's um, what they call, I don't know, um, like more mental science uh, kind of thing. It, it became very popular in the late 1800s. And basically, the central idea is what you think in your mind becomes your reality. And there's a book called As a Man Thinketh, and also the companion book As a Woman Thinketh. And uh, that was a turning point for me. I had actually received that book from my grandfather, and I dug it out, and I started thinking, I'm going to think positive about all this. And I was very careful about what I thought. And I thought, I have all the money I need. And I was sitting there meditating. And two hours later, I got a call from Bruce Swedean, who I had met in the missing persons days. And he said, Chuck, it's Bruce. What are you doing? <laughs> and he's like a five-time Grammy winner. So like my hand was kind of shaking a bit. No, we actually, we had been pals and missing persons, but. But, uh, and something just told me to say, I'm working with you, Bruce. Who are you working with? He said, I'm working with the glove. I said, really? <laughs> I said, the glove. And he said, yeah, Michael. <laughs> uh, okay. And uh, all right. He used to call him the glove. The that was glove. his nickname. Wow. And I said, he said, we, we want you to make us some of those great synth sounds. Michael wants you to make some soundscapes for him. Wow. And I said, great. I said, um, you need to send me a Sinclavier. You know, they cost like quarter of a million, right? And he, he said, it'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, and I'm going to need some lessons for a few days. I, I know just the person. He said, well, rent it. And, and he will instruct you for a couple of weeks. And that led to three or four years worth of work with Michael making sounds, thousands of sounds really that he distributed to the 300 people working for him. This guy was a serious business person, uh, Michael that is. 
and, and a very nice person too. And he loved that I was doing healing music. He thought it was fascinating. And, and he listened to it sometimes um, to the first album. And, and I think the second album also, which I did while I was working for him. But anyway, it just so happened that the amount of money I made with Michael was the exact amount of money I spent bringing Liquid Mind to market by starting my own little label. Okay. Going to a bunch of conferences and back then and manufacturing and selling CDs. So So what was, so you were constructing this music for, for what was Michael Jackson using them for? Like, what was he using your soundscapes for specifically? Uh, If you listen to a song called they don't care about us. Okay. There's an example of that. There's a, a soundscape at the beginning of it. It's a sound that goes, boom, you know, before the beat comes in. It's like a soundscape to introduce the songs. Okay. And Michael liked to do that. And then uh, he would listen to Michael was so creative. Oh, my gosh. He would listen to a sound and go, you know, how about if you cut a little piece out of that sound for me, and then I'm going to send it to someone to use as a snare drum sound. <laughs> so he would just take little bits of sound and and give them to people. And I think I was also, my sounds were used on Blood on the Dance Floor. Mm-hmm. I don't ever listen to anything I did. I don't listen to Missing Persons. I don't listen to Max Headroom. I don't listen to Michael's stuff. Um, so I don't know exactly how things were used. He had a lot of people working for him. I don't know how much of my material was used. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know when he, when he passed away and may he rest in peace when he passed away, uh, I got in touch with, with, um, his estate and they eventually came and, and I gave them everything. I gave them all the you know, the files and stuff that I had used to make the sounds. So that's very innovative. He was taking those pieces and so piecing innovative. them together and doing that. And, and, and that he was interested in, in the, what you were doing with the healing music, you know, of the slower music too. I mean, what would he have done in that realm? I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like thinking about like that, if he would have gone in some of those directions, I mean, it's just fascinating what would have been his take on that, you know, I mean, he was doing his own kind of healing music in a way, right. When you think about it, but, mm-hmm. but, um, but to think about what he would have, what it might, he would have done, but that was interesting that he was, he was listening to your early records and, and listening to what you were starting to experiment with in the early stages of liquid mind. Um, yeah. And, you know, Michael was so creative, uh, just unbelievable. And, a lot of that, I think we have to give credit to Bruce Swedean and Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Bruce, I don't know if you know much about Bruce. He was my mm-hmm. mentor, actually. He just passed away about two or three months ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear at, that. At the age of 86. Uh, was an amazing, amazing man. And um, he and his wife, B were, were ever-present, you know. <laughs> uh, B's uh, still alive totally energetic, uh, lives in Florida now, I believe. And, um, but for example, when they recorded Michael's vocals, they would record 
20 or 30 tracks of a song on different days. And Richard Perry, the Pointer Sisters producer, did a similar thing. I don't think a lot of people use this technique now that are recording pop music because it's just like, you know, slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, get the song out, you know, mm -hmm. write it and record it, use all the, you know, the sounds that you can buy and stuff. But Michael was not like that at all. And, and they would listen through to the 30 tracks. He would sit there and pick out lines that he liked. And then they would comp them back then. And there was no cut and paste on a computer. This was cutting, uh, you know, two-inch tape, recording mm. tape, and, uh, and having to sync up several in order to get like 120 tracks which now we think, oh, well, you can do that with any computer program. But back then, that required having um, six or seven uh, two-inch tape machines running in synchronization. Bruce was one of the first people to do that. I can't remember the name of it, but it's the system is named after him <laughs> oh, for wow. doing that. Yeah, so it was really fun, really creative, and... Uh, uh, interestingly, in, in, in Liquid Mind, I go to the opposite extreme. Um, I don't want I, uh, a friend of there's a friend of mine by the name of Barb Else. And Barb was head of research at the American Music Therapy Association. And in the mid 90s, uh, long about the second album, Slow World, uh, I sent out about a thousand albums to the entire mailing list of the American Music Therapy Association. There were music therapists who most of them have to have master's degrees. Right. Um, and they work right. with doctors and hospitals and stuff. And Barb got in touch with me and she said, uh, um, she said, we, like you don't wanna do anything. She said in music therapy, there's something called a, an arousal response. And she said, you don't want to have anything in your music that that breaks, you know, that is an arousal response, because all of a sudden people will come out of that trance or out of that relaxation or whatever. And uh, so starting with the, the third and fourth albums, starting around Unity, I guess, I really started getting rid of all that in Serenity, like I really started toning down anything that attracted attention. You know, it was kind of the exact opposite of what, what I was doing in pop music. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Where you've got all kinds of like shifts and changes and volumes and dynamics. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So. You're um, ironing them out. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And, um, a little bit back to the anxiety, I did want to mention for anybody that's listening out there that's having anxiety, uh, you know, there, there are some great books by uh, Claire Weeks, Hope and Help for Your Nerves. We spoke about that one in the yeah. emails. I had read that. I've read that book. I still have a copy of it. Yeah, it's a great one. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that that book, Feeling Good, A New Mood Therapy, uh, it's, I think... Um, it's one of the most popular uh, cognitive therapy books ever written. And basically, uh, 
very quickly. There, there are 10 cognitive distortions that uh, I think his name was Dr. Aaron Beck that he discovered back in the 1940s that every person who was suffering from depression has at least one of these cognitive distortions. And um, as um, anxiety and depression often go hand in hand and people swing from one to the other. And some of the cognitive distortions, they're all really just common sense, like all or nothing thinking, you know, black and white thinking, like something bad happens and you think, oh no, <laughs> that's it, it's terrible. And, and you know, you go from rational thinking to irrational thinking. Uh, another one is uh, magnification or catastrophizing something thinking like, you know, a water pipe breaks in your kitchen and your whole house is going to be flooded or something. You know, it's like exaggerated thinking. And I smile when I think about that because I learned that that's how I make my living in the entertainment industry, <laughs> writing songs and having exaggerated thinking. And I went to screenwriting school at UCLA as well. I, I never ended up following that, but you know, learning to exaggerate things is the fine art of screenwriting uh, for a lot of people and and writing a book and everything. The character, you know, you have to you have to really get into depth and writing a song. You have to think about the characters and the song has to if it's a, a hit song, it's got to hit you in the face. That hook line that comes in, you, you need to get them within 30 seconds. You're not going to do that by putting them to sleep. So I love my cognitive distortions, but I also know, and in that book, Feeling Good, there's a little technique called three-column work. And uh, if you're feeling exaggerated about something, the first thing you do is you write down what the thought is, uh, you know, like uh, the whole house is going to be flooded. And then you write down next to it, what's, what distortion is that? Well, that's all or nothing thinking. Mm -hmm. That's overgeneralizing. That's magnifying, catastrophizing. And then in the third column, you write a rational response, which is the kitchen is flooded, but I've turned the water off and the whole house is not going to, you know, to float away. Now, that's kind of a silly example, but learning that that technique was really important to me. That helped me, uh, that and lots of med meditation, you know, all helped me to become a deeply calmer person and to be able to, you know, after being afraid to fly, to be able to get on an airplane without giving it a second thought and fall asleep almost the minute I get on a plane. And, you know, to be able to leave my house back then, which sounds silly 35 years ago, uh, but 35 years ago, it wasn't silly. You know, it was scary to me. So I have a lot of empathy and love for people who, who have anxiety. And, um, you know, it opened the door to me for a better life through counseling and support groups. I went to gay support groups. I learned to grieve the friends that I had lost to AIDS and the family members that I had lost to, you know, my sister died at a very young age of cancer and other family members. Um, 
I learned to grieve in support groups and I learned how to cry. And I learned that, you know, what, what, what soap is for the body, tears are for the soul. And it's really, really true. So as we get older, I'm 74 years old now, and I don't feel like I'm 74. I feel like I'm 24, but awesome. But nonetheless, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. My dad lived to be 99. Mom lived into her 90s. And um, I just know that a lot of it is frame of mind, you know, and I'm so grateful for the, the tools that I got helping myself and others helping me to heal from anxiety. Um, it's, you know, there are always things we'll be anxious about, but I don't blow them out of proportion anymore. They don't rule my life. I just say, oh yeah, I'm a little nervous about that. But the reality is, and I, I think a rational thought, and um, a lot of people struggle with that. I've had thousands of emails and messages. Um, and I don't talk about them. You know, I've had people ask to see them and I'm not going to, you know, for conf confidence reasons, I'll show them the text, but never who wrote it. <laughs> and we even did a study of that. Um, and, and some of the results are posted on my website. Uh, Barb helped me, Barb else, you know, the music therapist, help me uh, do what's called a content analysis, where we analyze what people were saying. And 22% of the people, I think we analyzed 700 emails or something, 22% of them said uh, that the music gave them a transcendental experience. Mm. I'm not even sure I knew what that was sure. at the time, but you know, a spiritual, a heightened meditative state um, just looking at the numbers here, 20% of the people said that liquid mind induced sleep. And I had not thought about this really, both for adults and pediatric. Oh. Um, and uh, later on, I heard about pets. I've had a lot of uh, pet owners, not all of them, but uh, some say it doesn't help their pets, but others have said it puts them right to sleep, especially puppies. <laughs> um, 14% were doctors, nurses, and um, complementary and alternative medica uh, me yeah, medication practitioners, basically, um, you know, like people who did maternity and birthing, psychotherapy, massage therapists. So that's about 14, 15%. Um, anxiety relief was reported by 14%. Surgical recovery, 5% of the emails were from people who said, we use it in our recovery room at the hospital. Um, cancer therapy was another 5% of the responses. So all kinds of things that I never really thought about. I had always read the emails and thought, oh, that's really nice. You know, I'm going to keep doing this, even if, if I can't afford to, <laughs> I'll do it as long as I can. And um, you know, eventually streaming came into being and all of a sudden people started uh, discovering Liquid Mind uh, through word of mouth online. And I'm so grateful to be, I think this week, 
Uh, last week, I was number four. I've been number four, I think, for a month on the Billboard uh, New Age album charts. And um, I'm just, it's just amazing to me that, um, that my music hangs in there and is so popular with so many people. It's on a lot of, uh, uh, I think I'm number five this week on Billboard, the Meta meditation album liquid mind 10 meditation. meditation and it's it's amazing to me the number of people um you know that are listening to it now i'm on some top sleep playlists on spotify thanks to the label that i work with real music and darren blumenthal at real music has has been very proactive on my behalf and um there are 16 albums now, which is is really great. Um, it's amazed that I'm still doing them. Part of that is thanks to my assistant, Jonathan Morozik, who now co-produces the albums. And he's a, a student at Cal State Long Beach and uh, a very willing learner. He's actually an electrical engineering student. So he took very quickly to the engineering aspect oh, cool. of recording a new album. And although they're mixed very quietly, I use uh, three singers I have for years and I record them singing the longest notes they can. And then mm. I overlap them because liquid mind notes are long, you know, it's like, okay, sing, ah, uh, <laughs> you know, then I run out of breath, right? So I I learned a long time ago just to record notes that we can overlap. And then I mix them really low. I just sort of like the organic feel of having the vocals in the background. Liquid Mind albums take me six to eight months to record. Wow. Because I get really tired doing them. <laughs> One thing, I can only work like maybe three or four hours a day. I don't drink coffee. I had my last cup of coffee in January. It might have been in December of 87 or January of 88. I can't tolerate caffeine. Uh, that was one of the first things I learned. Um, but another reason is, you know, taking my cue from Michael, who would record 30 vocal tracks, I record uh, 40 ideas before I pick the top five or six that are going to go on to an album. I just do a sketch of them, but I do complete the sketch. So the sketch can be seven to 10 minutes long. And I wait to have 40 of them. And it typically takes me two or three months just to do that. And then I take a few weeks off and then I listen again and I go, okay, I like these 20. And then I like these 10. I wait another week. And then I pick out the ones that I just, that really moved me.
So it just takes a long time. And then recording them, recording the vocals. We've been doing that actually on one new piece. I'm going to be releasing, not sure when, maybe the end of June or early July, releasing a, a collection of, I think there's going to be 10 songs on it, one new song and nine songs from other albums. I'm going to do a complete new album in, in 2022, but this is just a collection. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's a long process, <laughs> but, but a good one. Well, one of the things, uh, and, and that's interesting about the vocals, because I was going to ask you if they were, you know, if they were synth vocals, or if they're real vocals, they're real vocals you have mixed in there and, and, and layered in. Um, I, I don't know where that kind of came from. I guess it's maybe like Brian Eno's airports where you had like the synth voices looped in. Um, one of the things about the, that I, I, I found fascinating about the album productions is, and I was, I was reading on your website and I was going to say liquidmindmusic.com slash therapy in the therapy se session where you mentioned uh, a lot of the studies that you did in relation to music therapy and um, how you've been able to outline various characteristics of liquid mind that these very, you know, these, the old, the ultra slow zero beat tempos and, and the absence of a dominant rhythm or percussion and everything is a uh, very continuous, continuous music without, without rests and, and, and gaps in it. And, um, and, and, and these different components of it. And I found that just so fascinating because the, within the realm of ambient music, um, you know, I've talked to artists where they, they say, well, you know, they make this music um, and it, it, it's, it's therapy for themselves. So they kind of release it, but you've done so much work to find ways to not just, you know, uh, personally while you're working on it um, to have benefit to it, but you've outlined benefits that you can express that you hope that your audience gleans from, from your music and, and, and you're able to now cater it in a lot of ways. Um, and I've just, I found that really, really fascinating. And, um, I was curious about some of the components of the music. Um, do you um, do you compose the music out? Is there's improvisation uh, involved? Um, is there a lot of layering going on? Because there's an orchestral quality that I get from your music uh, that I, that I feel from it. And um, what are some of the processes that you use in composing in composing the music? Uh, are there chords or various intervals or modes that you like to use to develop this continuous sound? Because it's it's um, it's very um, it, it just has such a like it, it, you mentioned on there a blanket of sound approach, very much so. And I was just curious about your composition. <clears throat> your composition of your of your works and what goes into the composing part before you even start um uh playing the 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 instruments right so there are there are a lot of ways i do it um uh, when i'm composing sometimes i sit at the piano and i'll sketch it sketch it out mm -hmm. uh sometimes uh i hear something and I'll talk about that a little bit more in a, in a minute, but I'll just hear something and, and go, oh, that would be really nice. And I'll go over and play it. And I'll just play it into a cassette player or whatever happens to be handy. 
and then later on I'll expand on that. Uh, more often than not, however, uh, when I was an organist in church, I learned from a wonderful organist called Gladys Hamilton Combs. <laughs> and Gladys taught me as a four-year-old, my parents used to let her, uh, she would let me sit next to her on the church organ while she was playing when I was a little, little boy, but they knew I loved the piano. And uh, I would sit there and and she would play this meditational music while they were doing prayer. They had like a prayer time for five minutes. And then 10 years later, when I became, I took over from her just for the youth uh, services. And she, she showed me how to do meditational music where you just kind of hold a chord and then you decide that you're gonna move part of it somewhere else you know i did have a good knowledge of chords i studied music for 10 years i guess but um or maybe 12 i'm not sure uh, so more often than not i i take a synth sound or a uh you know like a string sound and i'll start that way and just play and see where it leads but then eventually I definitely will, you know, use that as the basis for a composition. Sometimes I'll sketch it out. Other times I'll just sit there and I'll play it and I'll, I'll listen, you know, it's going, da, da, da. I think what comes after that, it's, ah, you know, okay. and I just work my way through it. You know, I just kind of grind it out. Um, so there is an improvisational quality to some sections, but quite often there will be a very slow theme at the beginning, the last two mm. or three minutes, and some sort of a reprise of the theme. And, um, you know, later in the piece, and then a central section that's just, um, you know, that's less compositional, I would say. Um, but one thing I do is once I do something, then I go back and edit. I believe, uh, you know, I believe there's like two frames of mind. There's the creative frame of mind that really should not analyze. And then there's the editing frame of mind. Mm. I always remember watching a video by John Cleese and I'm, I'm upset that somebody took it down off of YouTube, but it was a great video. And he talked about these two frames of mind, you know, the editing frame of mind. He talked about writing Monty Python and how there were, uh, you know, they would have their creative time where you're just like kids playing and you never want to edit yourself during that section. You never want to edit. And then you go back later in the editing frame of mind where you need to be critical and say, well, it really doesn't work that well. So I try to keep that in mind. When I'm first sketching, I don't want to get too crazy. But definitely when I start editing, I guess what I just described a minute ago was more in the editing phase. But sometimes I'll just sit at the piano and just play, just play chords. And I think one of the best exercises I ever learned, I actually did teach music uh, to help support myself for 
I don't know, let's see, probably six, seven years I taught music and I had some wonderful students and the student, uh, I, I would ask the student from the very first lesson to do an exercise that I read about in key, in a keyboard magazine probably 40 years ago. And it's, it's the number one exercise that I recommend to people uh, to expand their compositional ability. And you basically sit at the piano and you start playing to a metronome at whatever speed you want, slow, fast, pick your speed. And you set a stopwatch or a timer, like an alarm, and you don't stop for 15 minutes. Wow. So you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, in music, mistakes are not dangerous. No. And when, when I was teaching young kids, I'd say, you know, you don't want to make a mistake crossing the street, but a mistake in music is a good thing. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and they would start doing this. And, uh, you know, I had a, a couple of students that went on to some pretty good success with Grammys and stuff like that. Um, not, you know, as a result of my teaching, but, but maybe I contributed a little bit. One of them was Armin Chakmakian, who was in a group whose name escapes me now, um, a jazz group. And the other one was Donna Delory, who worked for Madonna, became one of her background singers and now has her own albums out. Wonderful, wonderful musician. And we've kind of been out of touch for years and years, but, but this exercise of, of playing without allowing yourself to stop. And that is, that's typical of the creative portion. Just allow yourself to create, you know, and then go back and see, well, what happened during that creative part that is worth keeping? What can I expand on? Once I have a piece that I like with just this one sound, maybe it's a string sound. It doesn't have to be the right sound. That's unimportant. Uh, it, even if it's, especially if it's not the right sound, it makes me listen to the composition. Do I relate to it? Is the speed right? Is it, is it, uh, is it slow? And does it lend itself to liquid mind? And then, then when I get in more into the layering mode, and I do use synth vocals, by the way, I, I use live singers, but I occasionally use synth, you know, uh, sampled vocals as okay. well in the background. And I'm very particular about the EQ, uh, the equalization, you know, the treble and bass mm -hmm. <laughs> for someone who doesn't know what EQ is. Sure. I'm very particular about that because... When we're children in the womb, in mom's womb, we only hear the low end. It's very muffled, right? <laughs> yeah, it's very muffled. Mm -hmm. And so uh, low frequencies tend to relax us. And that's actually been researched in some of the music therapy research. And uh, Barb mentioned that to me one day. She said, you know, people love low frequencies. She said, you're using that organ bass in their and she said, I think that's one of the reasons that your music is relaxing to people.
all of these elements, a lot of them were things that other people commented about my music or some of them that I came up with. I can't take credit for it all. Um, when you yep. look at, when you look at uh, the aspects of, of, um, of even just various things that you had mentioned, uh, tempo, even, um, you know, the, do you do you have any beats per minute that you you like? I mean, I used to think of some beats per minute things that are close to like resting pulses or or you know or temp or tempos you can stick with. And are there sometimes where your music is you, it mentioned a zero beat tempo, so it's there's really not a tempo. It's just like if a orchestra if somebody was conducting an orchestra, you know, without having a necessary tempo, but they're just flowing and it's just free time, you know. Is that something that you utilize or, or are there any particular, you know, you know, uh, tempos that you use, but they're just very right. slow that you found over the years. These slower tempos are ones that have a more relaxing effect on people. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, the, the topic of tempo is very interesting. There's been a lot of research done about that. And, uh, there's a fellow, I think his, gosh, his last name was Campbell. He wrote a book about it and he, he's passed on now. He was a teacher at, in, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Might've been Don Campbell, I'm not sure, but, but you know, he did some research on that and other people have done research. I'm not even sure, 100% sure that I have the name right, but um, there are, are whole styles and some artists that do music at certain tempos. I think Steve Halpern has, has done some music like that. And um, I looked into it and it all had a arousal response for me to use a tempo. So I just, you know, I talked with the president of the label back then, who was a guy named Terrence Yallop, wonderful man. Uh, who founded Real Music. And and he said, have you thought about doing things with rhythm? And, and I said, let's look into it. And I even tried some things and I just hated them, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I didn't really love it. And I just thought, you know, everyone else can do the rhythm. I know there's some research showing, I think it was 60 beats a minute or something mm -hmm. like that, you know, to be re relaxing because it it entrains with your heartbeat and everyone was talking about entrainment and that's an important aspect of music therapy and entrainment entrainment the term yeah it's yeah, i think it's brainwave entrainment and if you google brainwave music I used to look into it and I studied it for a while and now I know nothing about it, to be honest with you, because I just decided that it wasn't for me. It wasn't necessary. Um, you know, there are people that put subliminal relaxation words and things like that in their music. Sure. I don't do any of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't do anything like that. So back to tempo, my tempo for the most part is free completely free, like you said, as though I'm conducting my own little orchestra in my hands. Mm -hmm. With one exception, uh, I sometimes use little 
tiny, quiet rhythms. There's a piece on the Liquid Mind 5 Serenity album, very popular piece called Awakening. Mm -hmm. That's like millions of plays uh, on various, you know, all the various streaming services. And um, I use little tiny rhythms that come and go sometimes, but I I don't set them at any particular speed. And it's just like, it just kind of comes and goes. Um, and um, I don't do it very much, but sometimes I'll do that at the beginning or the end of a piece or for a few seconds in the middle, but it's mixed so quietly as to not be an arousal response. So I do have a little bit of rhythm every now and then. <laughs> it and, gives the mind something to focus on in there, you yeah. know, maybe just like to pick up on in, in the piece. Exactly. Like, For people who are meditating, uh, you don't necessarily want them to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. uh, that is sometimes a struggle for me if I try to meditate late in the day or in the early afternoon uh, when I would normally take a power nap, which is a whole other subject. <laughs> oh my. So my, my most popular album, the, the most popular Liquid Mind album is Liquid Mind 8 Sleep. And after that is the Deep Sleep album. So that tells you about something about the way that people are using my music. But uh, there's a, a wonderful gentleman who is still alive. I think he's 96. His name is William Dement. And he was one of the discoverers of REM sleep. And he founded the American Academy, one of the founders of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And he founded the school, the sleep medicine school, the famous one at Stanford University. If you want to study sleep medicine, that's where you go. And Dr. Dement, uh, someone sent him a copy of my sleep album. And he... Um, he sort of gave it an endorsement. I think I don't want to misquote him. So I'll actually go to my website and see if I can find it. But, but basically, that's, no, that's he said he thought uh, Mr. Wiles successfully creates a soothing and calming atmosphere, which could be an excellent addition to one's nightly sleep regimen. Hmm. So that got me looking into sleep. I read his one of his books. And I started studying sleep and learning that the, the 30 minutes before sleep are really critical to going to sleep. And so I don't necessarily recommend that people listen to my music while they're sleeping, but I do recommend they listen in the 30 minutes before going to bed. Um, I, I researched sleep tips and it's one of the most popular downloads from my website. If you go to the home, homepage of liquidmindmusic.com and you kind of scroll down about mid-page, there's a, a page there with about 10 or 12 sleep tips. Um, and it's all research-based. So um, if you're having trouble sleeping, have a look at the sleep tips. Liquid Mind may or may not be helpful to you, but the sleep tips 
at liquidmindmusic.com will definitely be of help. <laughs> and they're from his book and some other research. And, um, you know, they're, they're useful. So um, that's a little something about how I recommend that people use Liquid Mind. But like I was saying, back to the rhythm, I do have rhythm in some of the other albums that I, I don't think are, are as focused on sleep. But, to be able to keep a little bit of a alertness there. They, yeah, they, they all tend to make people drowsy. <laughs> that aspect of ambient music that Eno would speak about where it's like it's meant to be listened to with as much attention or you want as you want to give it or as least attention you want as you want to give it, you know? And and yeah, and, I loved his ambient music for airports. Uh I listened to that when I first moved to LA long before I ever had a panic attack. And uh, I always remembered that there was a piece on there. I can't remember the name of it, but I just remembered. I liked that it had no rhythm and it was just kind of airy. And and uh, and that was definitely an inspiration to me when I when I was starting out. That and Beethoven, Bach, and and uh, Chopin, and other people that I had studied as a pianist. I was going to ask you about any symphonic works that that you were because there's this there always glean kind of a symphonic work to your quality i was going to ask you about some composers that were really ones that were that were favorites of yours yeah i beethoven and bach mm -hmm. definitely and chopin as well uh to some degree but you know the beethoven uh you know the symphonic works yeah. that's Pretty yeah, much yeah. the only music I listen to, uh, not just Beethoven, but but I love symphonic works, the pastoral, um, yeah, pastoral works. Yeah, okay. Because uh, I, I really was thinking. I was. I mean, I was listening, and I was had. I had the mindfulness up on. I was trying to just think of different passages and feel what type of composers might might be in there. I, I just. I was. Just, you know, when I was listening, I was. I was. Uh, yeah. I was folding some clothes and I was listening. I was just thinking about different parts and I'm a big fan of Sibelius. And I was just going to uh, say Sibelius. You're going to say Sibelius. Okay. Cause I was literally, like, <laughs> my, my cursor is right over. Sibelius. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we were on a wavelength Chuck because I was, I was thinking about listening to all of Sibelius. Yeah, symphony works. one, symphony four. Mm -hmm. uh, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Really nice. Uh, I love choral music, and I'm thinking about writing some choral music. I'm actually dabbling in that right now. I'm not not really great at it, uh, but I'm learning. You know, my grandfather wrote music till he was in his 90s. He lived to be 98, wow. and he used to sit around our house and write music when he was in his 90s. And um, you know, that's one good thing about doing music. You can do that as long as you can think, I guess. Yeah. I love Tchaikovsky, yeah. too. I love the excitement of some of his works. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, I don't know, Symphony 3, you know, different, lots of different works. Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings is yes. just so stunning i mean brings me to tears i learned about that first one when i was doing max hedron 
Michael Honig, who's a wonderful composer, a German composer. Uh, I think he lives in Spain now, I'm not sure. And Michael was the, the co-composer there. And he said, let's listen to some Samuel Barber. And I got all choked up. I was like, oh my God, this is, I didn't know there was music like this, you know? It, there's a, a a CD that I've listened to for years. It's uh, It's on Deutsche Grammophone and it's called shadows and light ambient music from another time and track one is the adagio for strings wow on that album well, i will check that out i just wrote it down yeah shadows and light and and there's people that we've spoken about on here there's beethoven and there's also some Mahler and and uh, the rodrigo the the concierto uh and uh, but I've, I've really enjoyed this album a lot when i found it, it it was trying to make a connection between some of the slower music going back you know where did it come from? Well, we know that there's a lot of music that led to space music, ambient music, but it's interesting to hear it, to someone take it back to the, the classical and the impressionistic era and the modern composer era. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of choral music too. Um, I, and uh, it goes back to the, some of the Victoria and, and uh, Thomas Luis Victoria and, and some of the uh, works of Faure and, and oh, yeah. Palestrina, Faure, yeah, the Requiem and uh, oh. yeah, Palestrina's work. And in the last decade, I would say uh, Arvo Pärt's choral music has been a big, a big um, influence, and in, in a music that I really love listening to his choral. I love music. his music. You know, the Du Reflet has a Requiem that's that's pretty amazing. Oh, I need to um, check that out. Yeah. I think it's a requiem. Let me see if I can. A requiem work. Yes, it is. Requiem by Duraflay. Uh, I think. Well, I'm just looking here. Because the, these, these, this music, the the symphonic works had some a lot of layering to it, and 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 a lot of continuous continuous sound. But Chuck, as far as your instruments over the years, several series of Liquid Minds, and and uh, if people haven't known, we're at the end. I'll I'll give and we'll talk about where people can find the music if they haven't. But um, you know, labeling them as you do with the Roman numerals and providing a title past the number as you work through this. How has your instruments evolved over the years that you've used to compose your liquid your Liquid Mind works? As far as analog and digital and and software based and synth. Has that been, have you have sounds that you, that you've held on to that you use throughout those years or some favorites? And uh, I was curious about your instrumentation as you, as you produce, especially talking about how you go to the piano and you're working on the piano and then you're going to translate those into some, some, some synthesizer um, tonalities. Right. You know, uh, there has been a transition um to more virtual instruments, mm -hmm. I would say. But I find that some of them, for example, I use an old Roland D70. I know and that synthesizer. <laughs> the reason I use it, even though the keyboard doesn't work anymore, but at least the sounds still make a little noise, their keyboards are notorious for the weights drop off the keys after about 20 years. People joke about it. <laughs> uh, but my assistant says he can fix that. He's an engineer. Maybe he'll fix it one day. But uh, 
What I noticed about using real instruments, like the analog and the early digital instruments, is that the stereo spectrum is a little wider than it is on the digital counterparts. So um, I have Korg plugins. I have, I'm not in my studio right now, so I can't really access, you know, tell you exactly the ones I'm using, but um, I use some old Roland 760 samplers. Okay. And I think at one point when I was working uh, for Michael, I bought about 200 sound DVDs. And I had people working for me back then that would like load up sounds for me to listen to. And, and I sort of, you know, grabbed a few of those, like some vocal sounds and some um, breathing sounds and bell sounds. The way I would use a bell would be to record it and then reverse it and put it into reverb and only use the reverb. <laughs> You know, oh, okay. That, that yeah. Thing. Okay. So instead of bong, I went war. Um, <laughs> the, the release. Incorrectly. And maybe it's just going to be mixed with a voice way down low in the frequency range, an octave below the bell or something. Uh, I, at one point, I, I started using wind chimes and, and somebody, uh, might have been in the first album and somebody on Amazon said, you know, I love your music except for the annoying wind chimes. And, <laughs> oh, and everyone said, oh, don't take it seriously. You know, your music's good, blah, 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 blah. But I did take it seriously because that was an arousal response. It was somebody who simply wanted to be relaxed. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it would be ding, 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 ding. You know, everybody was into wind chimes in new age music in the yes. early 80s. Yes. No, so, I, I, I'm, I'm a big wind chime fan to, to extreme of having a lot of them that, that, that when you told me that it made me think about how eventually there would be out, I saw albums of, um, of, of rain music and it would say, uh, no thunder, or it would be thunderstorms and say no birds. Like they, somebody found out that they didn't want the birds to come in at the end of it or the thunder right. to be in it. <laughs> That's funny because, because the, the label, in addition to the, you know, there are numbered albums. So there are 13 numbered Liquid Mind albums, but there are also three collections. And the label asked me to please do, uh, because they'd had so many requests, to blend my music with ocean and rain sounds. Okay. So there's one, one uh, album like that. And a lot of people love it. It's not really my favorite. I, do, I don't like mixing things with the, the music, you know, actually. Mm -hmm. But I remember having the same issues. It's like, oh, my God, there's birds right there. What am I going to do? <laughs> you know, do the people want birds or not want birds? Well, they, you got to have birds. We're on the ocean front. Right, exactly. But it's an arousal sound for some people. It takes right. them out of it, you know? Yeah, like so you mentioned, I just kind of got that. over it and, and left the birds in. And, and uh, that was really a process to like, to audition all the ocean sounds. I think I spent two months finding an ocean sound that would fit with Liquid Mind. And it never really did perfectly, but... A lot of people say it's their favorite album. 
when are you doing the next one? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'll think about it. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, back to sounds and synths. Um, you know, I have some old Roland synths, D50. Um, I have them in the digital form too. But more often than not, whatever I'm using, um, on some sometimes there are a lot of tracks and a lot of layers. And uh, again, I learned from Bruce, not for this particular kind of music, but I learned from Bruce Swedean that you can layer things and then change the layers and people don't even know you're changing them. They think they're just listening, like you're just holding a chord, but actually you can go between three sounds there. And so I kind of did a, do a slow motion thing of that. Uh, it depends, you know, on the album and stuff, but, and that's also why I introduce those little, very quiet rhythms for a few, like 30 seconds every now and then. It's just another another layer, and um, and the vocals sometimes you know I bring them up, uh, but never too loud with the vocals. I've communicated with some meditation, um, I'll say group for lack of a better word, in India, and they mentioned that they never meditate to anything with vocals in it that they don't want that connection. They want the connection to be with the internal. Um, and that kind of makes sense to me too. So if I do have vocals, they're just part of the texture. Once in a while in the cadence, like the amen part of a, a piece, I may bring the vocals up a little louder or something just to kind of let people know, okay, this is the end. You can stop meditating. Um, I did one album called Dream, A Liquid Mind Experience. It was kind of focused for animals, but there are three pieces. They're 10 minutes long, 20 minutes long, and 30 minutes long. And again, it was an idea of the label, kind of a clever idea to do timed pieces that healthcare practitioners can use. So if you're you're a massage therapist, you can use Dream 20 and Dream 30. And uh, you add them together and it's 50 minutes. It's and when the music weird. stops, you thank your client. <laughs> so what a great idea. That's such a great idea. I mean, if you have a yoga session even and it's like, you know, 50 minutes, that's that's right. That's incredible. That's a great idea or, or to really time out because that's beneficial to the to the people, the professionals there, because they have to, you know, put together a music scheme. And sometimes, you know, that would be an easy way for them to be able to have a continuous or, you know, two two selections of music to be able to to time out just right for. I think that was the idea of, of Terrence's wife, who was the president of real music. Her name's Karen Kale. And she. Uh, uh, she and Terrence, you know, just had the, a great vision for their label um, being healing music. They recently sold it to a company called Cutting Edge Group here in Los Angeles. Uh, Terrence retired. And Cutting Edge Group is actually a licensing company that does music for film. 
uh, I think they have a website called music.film and they take music by top composers and license it out to films and stuff. But they've recently started a record label called Mindstream, M-Y-N-D-S-T-R-E-A-M. And I think they're kind of transitioning real music into Mindstream. And uh, Mindstream is interesting because they don't use genres, they use moods. So if you want to relax, mm. it's the relaxed mood. If you want to, uh, you know, yeah, if you want something more energetic, you know, then that's a different mood. If you want to sleep, that's a different mood. And I, I think if you go to their website, MYND, Mindstream, the five main moods that they service are meditation, focus, relaxation, movement, and sleep. So you click on one of those words and you get a list of all their artists and, and links to streaming services. You know, it's a, I think it's a, a smart way to go. Streaming is everything now. The, I still make CDs, but I only manufacture them to give them away. Oh, we don't wow. sell them. I think um, maybe we sell a few through Amazon. I think they're the only vendor that still carries them, but but mostly I give them away to like veterans groups and stuff to organizations to uh, when COVID happened, we sent out a couple of thousand CDs to healthcare workers oh, wow. um, and hospitals and police departments and different stuff like that. So CDs are more just a, you know, like, a helping hand for folks that still have CD players, which a lot of people do actually, um, even though cars don't have them anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, healing music needs to go to the practitioners who can get it to the people who can benefit from it. And that's always been my thought from the very beginning. Uh, to your listeners, if anyone's curious about Liquid Mind, go to YouTube and Google Liquid Mind Full Album. And my entire series is on YouTube for free. Anyone can listen to any album. I always said from the beginning that I wanted my music to be available to every person in the world that it could help. So I make a living at it through the streaming services and the people who, you know, who can't afford streaming services can access the music freely at YouTube. Um, it's really important to me because, you know, I did this music to heal myself, to get my life back when I was so afraid of panic attacks that I didn't leave my house for weeks at a time. I remember those days and, and I've always wanted my music to be absolutely free to the people that couldn't afford it. And the label, to their credit, has always agreed to that, uh, that it's okay to put the music up. We talked about it at first, and I said, you know, this is the way to go. Uh, the people that can afford the music will pay for it, and that'll support me. And the people who can't afford it, they need to have access to it. So that's, that's been the driving thought behind Liquid Mind.
what a great way to to think about your music as far as the access to it and, and very well said and um i appreciate i appreciate the music that that you release and and uh and and how you do that and and uh i i hope that listeners that are familiar with your music um or uh, enjoy the conversation and those that aren't can seek it out uh like you mentioned before and um i uh I wanted to thank you for for being on Tones and Drones. I, I really sure. appreciate it, you know. And I uh, and uh, your 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 uh, latest two albums. I, I've been listening to those a lot uh, in the last several weeks. And and peace and and mindfulness and mm-hmm. and it's like those albums. Um, you, you got your uh, read about peace being stages of conflict resolution what a great thing to have out in these times and your 2020 album about mindfulness another really great theme to address in the year that we had last year and that we still are in for the most part right i interestingly i i sent the peace album the one about conflict resolution i sent that to every member of the united states congress and every senator all 100 senators Yes. And I sent it to every member of the Supreme Court. Of course, I sent it to the I sent it to all 50 governors wow. of the state, you know, with a little blurb on conflict resolution. <clears throat> Interestingly, I heard back from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She wrote me a nice. personal note. And I also heard back from two or three governors. No, I think I heard back from like 10 or 15 governors. I heard back from a lot of governors. And um I think three, I think Anton, his name escapes me, who was also Supreme Court Justice, told me that he listened to it every weekend when he went home. He said, I listen to your music all day Saturday. (laughs) So uh, Anton Kennedy, I think was his name, Mm -hmm. Uh, Supreme Court Justice. So, um, yeah, I just felt like a statement needed to be made that even if I disagree with somebody, I can sit down with them and find things that we have in common and then see if we can't work our way through the disagreements. Um, so um, That's great you got some feedback. That Quite a grassroots effort there to send it out like that. That is fantastic. I did. I do that kind of stuff all the time. If, you know, I just buy a mailing list and go for it. Although it was quite a challenge to get all the, the correct ones for the governmental folks, but I got them. I had almost no returns. That's how I measure how good the mailing list is, how many CDs come back in the mail. (laughs) Well, that must have been quite an effort to to, to get it into their hands, you know, people, their their staff and whatnot. So it's amazing that you got some feedback. Well, yeah, I don't know how many people actually got it, but even if the staff member took it home, hey, you're helping someone. (laughs) You're helping someone. They're involved in the process. That's fantastic. That is really, that is really, wow. That's really, that's really great that you did. And yeah, and they listen to it and, and they have a hard job and, and, uh, and providing that, that, wow, that's just a great idea. And um, mindfulness in your 2020 album too, a year of mindfulness where people had to evaluate so many different things in their life as they're dealing with the pandemic and putting things into perspective like some of us never have before. Right, exactly. And, you know, mindfulness is just learning to be in the moment, like letting go of the future and letting go of the past, essentially. And and I think that's really important 
you know, during the pandemic, you can't be uh, thinking, oh, well, what if this or what if that? Why can't I be doing this? When is this going to end? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Soon, ho- hopefully, it's things are getting much more encouraging. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really glad to see California is opening their vaccine to everyone on the 15th of April. Texas has started that too here. Yeah. Yeah, We're we're lowering the age range by the week, but everybody can get it two weeks from now, which is really great news. I think so. And we, we have some, we have some hope in that because yeah, mentioning mindfulness, I remember typing into Google, uh, uh, when is the, Pan, and it was like, when is the pandemic going to end? Like that could, that's an auto fill in and, and, you know, and, 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 you know, being mindful as being there in that day and, and not putting a lot of worry or, or too much thought in when it's going to end, but being there in, in that particular day with yeah, it. It's, and, it's being in the moment and just saying, you know, this is what I'm doing right now. It may not be what I want to do, but it's what I'm doing right now and I'm going to make the best of it. Uh, that I possibly can. And uh, when it started, I have a young assistant that helps me, the co-producer, Jonathan Morozik. And and when he came over the first day with a mask, I said, okay, we're going to have to work outside, Jonathan. I said, this could go on for quite some time, but we're going to do everything we do just in a different place. Mm -hmm. So instead of having lunch together, we're going to eat outside (laughs) <laughs> and you're going to work in the garage. <laughs> and when I recorded vocals for the new piece for the collection that's coming out uh, this past week, it was all done in the garage <laughs> with one person in there. Nobody comes in the studio. So um, we just learn our way around, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he went shopping for me when I was... Uh, at high risk, you know, due to my age. And he would go shopping for me and and um, he got a hero bonus for that, you know, because <laughs> he's a hero for doing that to me. Like, Indeed. I'll never forget that, that he was willing to go shopping. He says, I should do the shopping um, for you. And I just, like, I didn't know what to say. I was just like, oh my gosh. This is like one amazing person. And uh, now he's had both uh, the vaccine and the booster, and I've had the vaccine and the booster. So we can officially be in the house without masks for the first time in a year. Wow. Small steps. Wow, back in the studio. But but just the idea that we aren't, I said, Jonathan, we're not going to give up, dude. We're going to do everything we always did. If we have to move computers to the garage, so be it. You know, one of us will be there. And we did a lot of things by uh, by Skype. You know, we worked like halfway here and the other half, he'd be at home by, and we'd be doing Skype and talking and doing all the work. So the album, the music still gets to go on and be released. Yeah, you know? exactly. They make long cables, so, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they make long XLR cables. Thank God for the 40-foot XLR cables. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Chuck, it was really an honor being able to speak with you on this program, and I'd love to have you back on the show. You know, it, it's this this podcast has been a labor of love that we started here at the end of the year as we were coming back into the offices and we started to podcast. And I, I wanted to be able to talk to people that work in these various realms of music and have these conversations. And uh, and it's, I'm just keeping it going. And I uh, sounds great, Jason. Appreciate Thank you being on here and and all of your insight and and your music and uh and I, again i'd love to have you back on the show because they're saying the series we're just going to keep rolling with this and um uh Ooh. and and the best places to look for your music we, we've mentioned liquidmymusic.com right um yes and, and there are links there to the the four main streaming services that that seem to be most popular are amazon mm-hmm. uh amazon music Amazon Prime and stuff. Not not just Prime, but I think you can listen on Amazon as well. And uh, Spotify, mm-hmm. Pandora, and uh, Apple Music. Those are kind of the big four, even though I'm on 40 different services, I think. Uh, so, But if you just go to my website, also you can download five free MP3s, like almost an hour's worth of music. Just on the home page, you just click on the link, and there's links. I think we have five up there now. Let me see. It says down. Click here for free MP3s, and yes, there's a link to streaming, and then there are five. If you're into MP3s still, which a lot of people don't bother with, you know, in the streaming world, but I still put up free MP3s because I want people who need the music to have access to it. It's that simple. So. And it's good to provide options like that. That's yeah, good to that's have the, the best way to, to listen to mind or just Google it. <laughs> it's the good to have those options because there's so many options to listen to music. It's good to cover them like that. Yep. And um, so. thank you for the music you make and for being on this show. Sure. Well, thanks, Jason. Thanks for having the show and for the, you know, interesting questions. Uh, this was more musically oriented than any other interview I've done, I think. Everyone asked me about different things, but uh, you really got into the fine points of the music. It was kind of fun to talk about that, so thanks. You're welcome. It's fun to talk as well. And thanks again to Chuck Wild for being on Tones and Drones. You can find more about his music with Liquid Mind by visiting liquidmindmusic.com. So much great information there, and you can find uh, some expanded uh, information on the topics that we talked about on today's program, and I've got those links in the show notes. Tones and Drones is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVLU. For more about the station, visit kvlu.org. You can find Tones and Drones on the NPR One app and also on all the major podcast platforms. If your favorite podcast platform has a place for review, I sure appreciate if you would uh, leave one there. I'm Jason Miller. Thank you for listening to Tones and Drones. Going to close the program with another selection from Liquid Mind, a song called At the Center is Love. And remember, may music bring you peace and joy.